Does anybody have the bulletin from last week, the, the insert from last week? You'd think I would, but I don't. Um, not even last week, sorry, two weeks ago, um, Contagious Holiness. Excellent, sir. I see the reference from one thing. Thank you, sir. Okay, so two weeks ago, Alan Braun asked a question, and I punted because I didn't know the answer, and I said I'd get back to him. I am now going to get back to you, sir. The question, if Dr. Braun raised, if you turn in your Bibles to Exodus 29, um, was the translation of a text that was rather significant in my exegesis. And what I, if you recall, hold on, let me open this thing up and open this thing up and then open that thing up. Okay, if you'll recall... Um, it was the part of the argument in the passage where I was talking about Jesus has this sort of contagious holiness. That Everything else in the law talks about how the unclean makes other things unclean and how leprosy above all is so unclean that you've got to... There's only three groups of people that are outside the camp because of their uncleanness. And of those three, only one of them has to like, you know, um, loudly announce their uncleanness and that's lepers. And Jesus touches him, and everything you'd expect from the law is Jesus should become unclean. He doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes clean. And then I made the point that I was only aware of two things in the Old Testament that have this effect. And then I read the ESV of Exodus 29 and verse um, 36 and 37, which in the ESV says, I'm going to read a couple translations here. Hold on. Uh, Let me get it up on my computer. Exodus 29, um, 36. Excellent. Okay. So the ESV, Also, you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. And I was arguing that really this, and we could go to Leviticus, and it says the whatever touches the, the sacrifice becomes holy. And I said, there's only two things. It's the altar, it's the sacrifice, and Jesus, we learn in the book of Hebrews, is our altar, Jesus is our sacrifice. And then Dr. Braun said, well, that's not what some translations say. And so if you want to read a very significant, um, you'll notice the difference very quickly, um, the, the King James or the New King James says this, Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar must be holy. That would be a rather significant difference, and that would, my 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 point, um, depended in large part on that reading. By the way, the same thing in the Leviticus passage, the same difference of opinion, the same in both here and there, because the Hebrew construction is identical. So we're not going to look at Leviticus 6, 24 to 28, but if you go there, the ESV will say, whatever touches the sacrifice is holy, and the New King James will say, whatever sac- touches the sacrifice must be holy, or the King James will say the same thing. And if you want to take a survey of translations, and I'll, I'll deal with this in a second, the New American Standard, whatever touches the altar shall be holy. Let's see, the Holman will be holy, and the King James must be holy, New King James must be holy, NIV will be, okay. Um, This isn't, however, a, now sometimes when you're dealing with, with difference in translations, you're dealing with a difference in the Hebrew text. So sometimes different translations will say different things because they're taking a different reading of the Hebrew text. That's not what's going on here. Um, 
Daniel's Hebrew is far, far better than my Hebrew. And so we talked about it this week, and I think I can get this right. Um, basically, and I'll, and I'll read to you, if, if, you get a, if you get a chance online, the most woodenly literal translation you can get is Young's literal translation. And so um, basically what you've got is this. The altar, most holy, and all that touches it, holy. That's the Hebrew. And then the translators have got to figure out what the relationship of those words are. So it's not a text-critical issue. It's not a Hebrew text issue. Both what the King James does and the New King James and what the ESV and New American Standard do are legitimate translations. It's up for the reader to figure out what the relationship is. Is it um, the altar being or is being most holy and all that touch it holy? Right? Holy, all that touch it. And so you got to figure out, is it saying it becomes or it must be? And in short, um, the ESV, the New American Standard, go with um, will be. There's two reasons for that, and I think they're right, but I'm not. This is still something that context is going to be key. The New King James, King James, it's not a bad translation. It's a totally possible translation. In the constructions and other places, like, for instance, you must be holy, be holy for I am holy, the verb to be is placed in there. There is no verb to be here. So there's, there is a construction that's used, you must be holy, it must be holy. If people come near, they must be holy. And the verb to be is absent from this. It certainly could still mean must be holy. It's just frequently must be holy occurs with that verb. The second was the um, Jesus argument about the altar sanctifying what's put on it, Right? Let me find that one. The altar that sanctifies it. Um, unless you want to find that first, Seb. I'll find it. Altar. The altar which sanctifies it. Altar. Sank. Boom. And we got zero results. Awesome. Is it altar, A-R? Yeah. Ah, that's the problem. I can't spell. That's the problem. Okay. Um, we're looking at Matthew... Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, Matthew twenty three nineteen. I think Matthew twenty three nineteen um, backs up the ESV, the New American Standards reading. Um, but you can't be absolutely certain. Um, so look at, let's pick it up in Matthew twenty three sixteen. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred or sanctified? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by the oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar which makes the gift sacred or sanctifies the gift. So um, it doesn't. it's not absolutely decisive. There we've got the notion the altar makes sacred things that are placed on it, which would... I. Anyway, but I want to point something out. I am very happy that Dr. Braun brought this up. Um, I, I want to make it clear that we need to test all things. And I'm not some authority, and I'm not some pope, and I'm not some guy who just cause, who has inside track. This is good, and you should all be testing what I'm saying. And I'm giving the best answer I can, and you can go further if you want, but I, I think, yes? Mm. 
Okay. Okay. Sure. Sure. Right. Sure. Sure. No, absolutely fair enough. And, and let me say again, the King James, New King James translation is a perfectly legitimate interpretation of what's being said. You, the, the reader is supposed to understand the relationship. So I, I, I think I tend to favor because of the Matthew thing. Regardless of whether that Exodus passage teaches it, the author makes things sacred. We get that from Matthew 23, right? I think the Exodus passage is where it teaches that. It might not be. So anyway, but I want to say this type of stuff's good. This type of stuff's good. Dr. Braun is paying attention, and he's, he's not just taking my word for it. You should not take my word for it. You should check for yourself. The Bereans had Paul, a far, far better and more authoritative teacher than me, and they studied the word day and night to see if these things were so. So this is good. I, I, I welcome it. Thank you, Dr. Braun, for your close scrutiny. Um, any other questions from this morning? Healing of the paralytic. Oh, yes, Mandy. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay. Now, by the way, remind me if I don't do this, because Sarah Braun and some other people I know listen to this every week. I, want, I need to repeat the question. And so I've been reminded by them, repeat the question, please. So Mandy asked, this morning I made the statement that Jesus, as far as I can tell, didn't have any leg up, didn't have any advantages that we did not have in his earthly life, that he was made in every way like us. And then she said, but he wasn't born a sinner. Agreed. If you were to press me, I'd say probably a better comparison would be Jesus has no, the second Adam has no advantages that the first Adam did not have. That really Jesus is conformed to the image, or he's, he's most comparable to Adam. Um, so Adam isn't born a sinner, isn't made a sinner. Jesus isn't made a sinner. In some respects, Adam has advantages. He's not living in a cursed world. He's not dealing with, with sinful people. Um, but my, what I'm trying to get at is in every way, so the New Testament says Jesus was made in every way like us, yet without sin. Go to Hebrews 2, very quickly. Very, very good question. He was not, he did have that advantage over us, Mandy. Absolutely. Amen and amen. But um, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might become the one who has the power of death, the power that, sorry, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So my default, when we're trying to think through, is Jesus like me, is, and we've got other passages, he's sinless. 
my default based on that passage is I'm going to assume Jesus' humanity and his earthly existence is like mine unless being like me involves sin, right? And so apparently, according to Luke 2, that means he's growing in wisdom. He doesn't show up actively knowing everything. Let me use an analogy that I've used that I think holds up. I want you to imagine I have the luxury version of some car or van. I got the luxury version of the van, and it's got the heated seats, and it's got the power steering, and it's got the, you know, the, you know, whatever. What? Brakes. It's got brakes. Um, and and uh, I want you to imagine that uh, Zeb has the exact same model, but he doesn't have the luxury edition. Okay. And I go into my car and I unhook the wires that turn on all those power features. Or, or I, it's simpler yet, I have a switch that turns them all off. And so when I turn the switch off, I don't have, I don't have access to power steering, I don't have access to heated seats, I don't have access to, to power seats. In one sense, I can absolutely, literally say, I own the luxury edition full, fully. Everything required to be the luxury edition I have. And I can also say, driving my edition of the van is no different than driving Zeb's. So if I took the features out, it would be less than the luxury edition of the van. Jesus does not lose his deity. He doesn't make use of it. He, he sets it aside. He doesn't grab onto it. He, there's, he empties himself, whatever that means in Philippians, and people have written thousands of pages on that. But what we see again and again is even though Jesus has the power to heal, I believe, because he's God, he's not healing in his own power. He's returning in the power of the Spirit. The power of the Lord is on him to heal. So it's not as though Jesus is accessing his own divine power to heal people. He's healing people the way men heal people, the way the prophets heal people, trusting in God's power, trusting in God's Spirit. You see what I'm saying? So in that sense, Jesus' healing is very similar to Elijah's healing or, or in the ministry of Moses. In other words, God's prophet, his spirit comes upon him. God empowers the man to do miraculous things. And we get Luke showing us that's the exact way Jesus so far is doing miracles. He doesn't have a leg up on Moses. He doesn't have a leg up on Elijah in regards to having access to things that they didn't have access to. There's other people whose God's Spirit has come upon, who've spoken for God, who've done miracles. And so in that sense, Jesus is not utilizing helps that others have not had. Yes, Zeb? Yeah, yeah. How is he doing this in power of himself? Right, right. Now, Zeb's point, for those at home, is quite right. Again, this type of text in Luke 5 presupposes the doctrine of the Trinity, because if, if there's only one God who reveals himself in three persons, but they're not distinct persons, then there's no point in making the distinction that the power of the Lord was on Jesus to do miracles. It only makes sense if the Lord, the Father, is a different person than the son. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, does, that, does that make sense? So absolutely without sin. He does have that advantage. Um, but if you were to press it, the whole first Adam, second Adam, last Adam theology that Paul brings up in both um, 
Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15 where he has extended comparisons to the first man, this last man, the first Adam, the second Adam, the, you know, and he does this comparison. Jesus is seen as the second Adam and, and the comparison doesn't just end there. You think of because of the one man's act, the many were made to be sinners. So Adam does something and it defines and affects who we are. So Jesus does something and it enables that to define and affect who we are because of his righteous life and death on the cross. That can define us. And so they're both heads, in a sense, of, of, of humanity, of fallen humanity and redeemed humanity. And so, yeah. But my, I, I said something else that even, hold on, Dan, I, I see that hand. Um, that someone talked to me last week, they, 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 uh, two weeks ago, that they were surprised at. I said that by now, I believe, Jesus has already memorized the Bible. And the question, what do you mean memorize the Bible? Doesn't he know it already? We see him in Luke studying in the temple. It seems like an odd thing to do if he already memorized the Bible. I think, and, and that's in the context. Remember, remember we talked, I made a big deal of this. His use of, of inclusio, where you bookend, go back to Luke 2. Um, I will get to you, Dan, I promise you. Um, in Luke 2, we've, and Inclusio is that bookend where you start and end the chunk with the same thing. And it gives you a big insight into the theme or the major point. And in Luke 2, that story of Jesus at the temple is bookended with, um, where is it? Verse 40 and verse 52. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and favor of God was upon him. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So that tells you when I'm reading this story, what, what's, the, what's one of the big things I'm supposed to see? I'm supposed to see the Son of God growing in wisdom. And then where do I find him? I find him in the temple, sitting and, and, and listening to the teachers. That's what it says, right? Um, so it, after verse 46, after three days they found him in the temple. What's he doing in the temple? Sitting among the teachers and listening to them and asking questions. In other words, he's not the teacher here. He's the student. Now, he's an active student, and he's not just taking everything they say, and he's sifting what they say, and I'm certain he's spitting out what's wrong. He's, he's not just taking everything they say wholesale. He's, he's Alan Braun's doing what he's doing. I'm not, I'm not going to do the opposite. I'm not going to say Jesus is doing what Alan Braun's doing. But you want to argue, you want to reason the right way. Um, but that's, I'm sure, I mean, in other words, I don't believe Jesus ever believed something that wasn't true. And so as they're teaching, and these are hopefully faithful teachers, and they've studied the Bible, he's, he's learning. The only other option of what he's doing here is he's setting them straight. Otherwise, what's he doing that's so important that he leaves his parents? I think the answer is Jesus knows he's got a ministry coming, and this is one of his first opportunities to get access to these teachers of the law who can greatly accelerate his learning. You know, I mean, you can, you can study your Bible by yourself and you'll learn stuff, but man, I'm greatly benefited by talking to other people and other people who've read the Bible longer than I have, showing me the insights they've gotten to. So, so Jesus didn't need them to study his Bible, but getting their insights and getting what they've studied certainly accelerates the process, right? So if the whole point of Luke 2 is to show us, here's Jesus learning, I think that is, then the point of showing him, seeing him show up in chapter 4 is we're supposed to think Jesus' quoting of the Bible to Satan, Jesus' quoting of the Bible to other people is not fundamentally a function of his deity, but fundamentally a function of his faithful humanity. Because Jesus as a 12-year-old was faithful, Jesus as a 33-year-old knows his Bible. 
That's the point Luke wants us to conclude. And that's where I get frustrated with the sort of the Superman. Well, of course he knew the Bible. He wrote it. No, of course he knew the Bible. He studied his tail off as a 12-year-old. That's what Luke has shown us. And isn't it significant? The only glimpse we get of Jesus' life from when he's presented at the temple to when he's baptized, the only glimpse we've got is three days of undisturbed study in the Torah. And then when he shows up and he owns the Bible and he masters it and he's silencing the Pharisees and he's just shutting down the Sadducees and the scribes, we know why. Because of that one little window that we got into 12-year-old Jesus. That's the conclusion we're supposed to draw. Not, well, of course he can do that. He's God and he wrote it. No, wow, what a faithful young man to study and study and study and study his Bible. That's what I was getting at. That's, that's I think, the conclusion Luke wants us to draw. Um, so, any, anyone want to interact with that or any questions? That? Then I'll go to Dan. Where's, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, well, it's a combination of, of all of those things, I think. Jesus absolutely demonstrates supernatural knowledge at times, right? So when he comes and he speaks to Nathan in John 1, before, before I called you, I saw you under the fig tree before I came to you, right? And he knows about the woman at the well, that her, her five husbands. Yet there are other times where Jesus' evidence is he doesn't have knowledge. Who touched me? Right? Who touched me? Master, there's a whole group of people around you. Well, I know that power has gone out for me. Who touched me? The woman with the, with the flow of blood in Luke 10. Um, there's, there's a couple of instances where Jesus clearly, unless he's deceiving us, unless this is pure theater, does not possess, is, okay, I've got to say this carefully, is not acting, is not act, activating. He's not operating with omniscience. I want to be careful because it's not as though he stopped being omniscient. He's not utilizing. There we go. He's not utilizing omniscience. That makes any sense. He's got the he's got the he's got the luxury features turned off, right? Um, so the conclusion I draw then is: How do you explain the times where Jesus supernaturally knows things and the times he doesn't? The supernatural knowledge he gets comes to the Spirit, not his own omniscience. Just in the same way that somehow Elisha knew what his servant did, even though his servant was out of sight. You remember that when Naaman comes and Naaman wants to pay Elisha and Elisha says, no, no, no way. Well, the servant leaves and says, actually, my master changed his mind. We, we would take some of that silver. And when he comes back, Elisha says, I saw you. And it, how does he know? Well, apparently God showed him, you know? Um, and I would attribute in the same way that, that Jesus is being given the information by his Father through the Spirit that he needs to do his ministry, and that would explain the times when he knows more than mortals know. But there's precedent for that in the Old Testament. It would also explain the times he doesn't. So in other words, Jesus is basically operating in Father, I'm going to trust that you're to give me the information I need to do what I need to do. And there are times he knows all sorts of stuff. You know, He knows the thoughts and intentions of men, but how else do you account for it? And Luke already, he's returning in the power of the Spirit. We're, we're meant, he's framing the beginning of Jesus' ministry as a demonstration of the power of the Spirit, not in his own power. Yes? No. No. That's his own deity. That's a claim to his own deity. This is where it gets different. 
he's, he's, okay. What? Oh, repeat the question. Good. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Is then Jesus' authority to forgive the sins due to the Spirit or his own deity? I certainly believe it's due to his own deity. Here's, here's the difference. Um, philosophers distinguish between what a thing is and what a thing does. And the categories are ontology. These are $5 words. What a thing is in essence and what a thing does. Economy. So in the Trinity ontologically, all three members are equal. In what they are, in being, in essence, they're all fully God. And so all, all orthodox doctrines of the Trinity would say, whether they use these words or not, that the three members of the Trinity are ontologically equal. Economy speaks about what a thing does, its function. And yet, in economic terms, there is subordination. The Father sends the Son. The Son and the Father send the Spirit. The Son always does the will of the Father. We never see the Father obeying the commands of the Son. And so in economic terms, there is hierarchy, and they are not co-equal. In how they have chosen to function, there's an ordering. Ontological equality, economic subordination. Interestingly enough, that's exactly how God made man, men and women, ontologically equal, and yet in marriage, there's an ordering. Because he made man in his own image. Interesting. Anyway. Um, so ontologically, Jesus never stops being God. And ontologically, then, he never stops deserving worship and honor and praise and having the right to forgive sins, even if he chooses not to function in economic terms with all of those rights and privileges. Does that make sense? So who he is is God. Therefore, he can forgive sins. That's who he is. He has that right and authority, not as an extension of... When God forgives sins, it's not him like using miraculous power. It's, it's a judge issuing a verdict, and it's based on Christ's death on the cross. So God isn't, isn't exercising divine power when he forgives sin. He's exercising divine right. Jesus will insist in, John, in Luke chapter 5, he, he, he retains all divine privilege. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the bridegroom. Even if he does not exercise divine power on his own authority. Does that, that, am I slicing it too thin? Does that sort of make sense? So what, what Jesus is insisting is, despite the fact that I've laid aside my divine use of power, I've chosen not to utilize omniscience, and I've chosen not to utilize my power, I still insist, he's Jesus speaking, I still insist that I'm Lord of the Sabbath, I'm the Son of God. He lets Peter worship him. He lets the, um, he lets the um, leper worship him, and he will claim to be God and claim all the rights and privileges of God, even if he's not going to utilize the power of God in his own being. So, yes, Kevin. Oh, before Kevin changes it up, Kingery. Oh, okay. Any questions? Okay, okay. Any questions on on what I just said there before Kevin changes? I'll go to Kyle. Then, does that sort of make any sense? We're, let me pause. Let me pause before, before. No, 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 no. Admittedly, when we're talking about the incarnation, there's a sense in which this is mystery. How does the eternal Son of God become a zygote? And so, a lot of what we're doing is trying to avoid heresy. <laughs> 
Um, so on the one hand, you want to say he's not less than God. He's fully God. On the other hand, he's learning. And God never sleeps, but Jesus sleeps. And God never grows tired or grows hungry. And Jesus gets hungry. And so you're trying to balance all this stuff out. So we start saying these things. What we're really trying to find is a way to say, he became like me in every way without sin. He grew in wisdom. He's God. And try to find some way that those things don't conflict with each other. So we get these really complicated things. We're parsing stuff out. And so these are the best ways I can think of to try to explain it. What we see, and here's in simple terms, the supernatural power that Jesus exercised exercises so far in Luke's gospel has been repeatedly attributed to the Spirit and now to the power of the Lord, not Jesus himself. And Luke has presented Jesus himself as growing in wisdom and learning. And yet Jesus at the same time insists, you can worship me. I can forgive sins. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the bridegroom. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And so we're just trying to find a way to synthesize all of those things. That, that's, that's the deal. Kyle. I spoke to it. Dave. And then... He's gonna, Dave's gonna re, Dave's gonna replay what he thought he heard I said. <laughs> yes, yes. Right, and that's where I'd say really the best comparison. Okay, sorry. Jesus learned perfectly. Yes, because Jesus' mind was not affected by sin. Jesus, so we, we want to be careful because it's tough that he, he learned. He never learned wrong. You and I will learn things and then have to unlearn them. If anyone's tried to play an instrument, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and so you think something's true or you have, an un, you have an unfaithful teacher and you learn something and like, no, that's not true. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Jesus never did that. So Jesus, when he's learning, is hearing what the teacher, and we see him there. He's asking questions. He's not just going, okay, if you say so. So you, you envision a scenario, you envision a scenario where the teacher says something, and Jesus says, well, if that's true, what about what Isaiah says? And everyone's amazed in Luke 2 of Jesus' questions and his answers. And so he's learning from them, but he's learning sifting and, and weighing and, and comparing Scripture with Scripture. So he's learning perfectly. He's never adopting a belief that's wrong. He's never having to go back and fix it and change it up later. He's learning perfectly. And so we want to say both he's learning, but he's learning perfectly. And that's certainly a strength or an ability that Moses didn't have, which is where Adam, with his unfallen mind, I mean, Adam's able to classify all the animals into genealogical file with names that mean things pertaining to what they do in an afternoon. How's that for a day's work? The guy is the most inherently brilliant human, apart from the Lord Jesus, ever made. And so Adam's demonstrated. And then as soon as Adam sins, I got a plan. We just get some leaves. We'll be okay. <laughs> He's dumb because sin makes you stupid. Um, yes, Chris. And then I'll get to Kevin. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. Yes. The text says it, not me. That's Hebrews, right? Can you look that one up for me? I'm... Now, he learned obedience perfectly. But here's, here's the basic point. Jesus had to learn, and simply by learn, he hadn't ever done it before. Had, had God ever got commanded by humans before? 
Jesus, as a human, had to learn to obey the second commandment. Children obey, not the second commandment, this, the fifth, fifth commandment. Children obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. By experience, Jesus didn't know what that was like. He, he'd always had a relationship with his father, a perfect, perfect relationship with his father. And he's come down here and, you know, put up with us. There's a, there's a point a little bit later in Luke where, where Jesus basically says, you guys are really a pain to deal with. Um, it's uh, in Luke 9. We'll get there. But um, how long will I have to deal, deal with you? He's, I think is what he says. How long will I have to put up with you? How I can't await, how, how long I am to return to my father. There's a sense in which people like you and I are pain. Um, where did you, where's uh, learned obedience? Okay. He thinks I'm twisting scripture. Okay. We've got, we got more people here. That was a nice way of saying it, Seb. Like, I'm not, for those at home, I'm not sure if that's in the context that you were using it, which is a polite way to say he's twisting. Let's take a look. Hebrews 5 8. The immediate context is. Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. Let me go back to verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son today, I have begotten you. As in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So first point, Jesus didn't grab the priesthood that was given to him. Right? In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he has heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became a source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, being designated by God a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus learned obedience when? In the days of his flesh. That's, that's all. I'm, as, as Jesus learning obedience takes place in the incarnation. That, whether or not that has to do with him learning obedience through submitting to Mary and Joseph, which Luke makes the point, he went home and submitted to his parents, or whether it's just all of his suffering, it's in the days of his flesh. Is, is what introduces this. No? Yes? No? You, you, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Just, it seems like the, the specific okay. context of what, what the author here speaks of mm-hmm. is in his priestly role, which he didn't enter into until he was Sure. I mean, really, he didn't enter into it until he was in Sure. It, okay. To it, I would say, yeah, the sum total of all of Jesus' suffering is how he learned obedience. That suffering began the second he entered this world, eight days after he was born and his foreskin was cut. It began when he had to deal with sinners. Now, the, 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 the highlight, the, the extreme and final suffering is on the cross, but the prayers and petitions he's offering is talking about the Garden of Gethsemane, right? So you can't just limit it to the cross. It has to extend to this world. So, so fair enough. By weaker, by weaker principle, the other stuff. But I think it's fair to put it in there, even though, granted, the cross and the immediate surroundings is the primary place he learns obedience. Um, but Ephesians, Philippians 2, he humbled himself, became obedient, even to the point of death. Now, there the obedience that he becomes isn't just the death. It's simply the high mark of obedience. So, and I'm just, okay, I'm looking at Jesus shows up at 30 years old, He's baptized. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased is a statement on the perfect obedience up to that point in his life and his God's pleasure in him. Hold on a sec. Kevin's next. Then and we're, we're just about out of time. We've got two minutes. We're not going to get to you. What is it? Just, just throw it out. Well, 
Okay. And how that speaks to history. And in history, and to me, actually, yep. Sure. Let me, the, the question, and I'm going to give the one minute answer and we'll pick it up next week. That's a fantastic question. The question, um, let me paraphrase it this way. How do we know that the, the paralytic had faith in Jesus as God? Jesus is, how do we know he had faith in anything other than this guy can heal me because he's a healer? Um, where would repentance come in? Where would anything else come in? And that's a great question. I think we have to work backwards. We can't argue one way or the other what he believes. We know he wants to be healed. But we also know from Luke um, chapter 5 that the people were showing up, at least in part, to hear the word of God, not to see miracles. So 5.1, let me get to Luke. Um, we're over time. If you want to leave, that's fine. I'm just going to try to answer this, and then I'll pause. But in 5.1... Even though Jesus has been doing miracles, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. So we know a crowd of people are not simply showing up to see miracles. So it is entirely possible then that the, the, uh, the paralytic and his friends are interested in more than just healing. They certainly want healing. Um, they may have heard some of the other claims of who he, this is the Messiah. I don't know what they believed. It's an argument from silence either way. I know that Jesus sees their faith and forgives their sins. And I harmonize that with the rest of Scripture, and then I can start to figure out what they must have believed. I certainly think they believed more than, this man can heal me. I don't think that would be enough to forgive anybody's sins. But we'll pick this up next week. But Luke's already given us some evidence that people aren't... Some of the people are starting to get it, is all I'm saying. 5.1 makes it clear there are some people who are seeing past miracles to what the miracles are indicating. This is the guy who can give us the Word of God. We'll pick it up next week. That is a great question. Thank you. God bless. And good afternoon.